Good morning, everybody. Hey, that young man in the video just there is Blake Wynn, our next-gen student minister. Uh, he got married this weekend. So next time you see Blake, you can uh, congratulate him and his bride, Emma, on uh, the beginning of this next chapter of their lives. So we're very excited for them. And I know they're very excited, too. And they're just precious people. So if you haven't met Blake yet, uh, coming up to congratulate him would be a great excuse to meet him and just say, hey. So um, really happy for them. I'm looking forward to jumping into God's word together this morning. But before I do, I want to take a second and just uh, pray for our world as a congregation. If you wouldn't mind joining me in that prayer, I'd just love to take a second and talk to God. Um, Lord, Lord Jesus, you, uh, you warned us that there'd be wars, one after another of varying sizes and scopes and natures. And uh, certainly we're experiencing that and, and have been in different ways uh, off and on and, and around the world are, are as long as we can remember. But we're experiencing it again in some really profound and heartbreaking ways. And we want to lift that up to you, Lord. Uh, Jesus, in the, the land that you walked on, the, the region you call your homeland, uh, people are hurting and violence and terror are ravaging people's lives. And so, Lord, we uh, want to be the kind of people that you called us to be, people who make for peace, people who pray for peace, people who do what we can to contribute to peace and healing and, and um, care for those who are hurting. So that's what we're doing, Lord, as best as we know how. We want to care for those caught in the crossfire of all the conflicts around the world. And, and certainly, God, we want to pray. It is far from the least that we can do to lift this up to you. So, Lord, we pray for those who are hurting, those who are, who are losing lives and losing loved ones, those who um, are, are caught in the insanity that is sometimes our humanity. Lord, we lift that all up to you. We pray for peace. We pray for that wisdom would prevail. We would pray for compassion. And God, we pray for our hurting world. We stand in the gap as much as we know how to do to just say, Lord, we know you see. Lord, we know your heart breaks even more than our hearts break. And Lord, we want to share that burden, give that burden to you. Be with us now as we open up your word and teach us as only you can. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. Thanks a lot for praying with me. All right. We are in a series called The Great Life. We're talking about finances in this series. How many of us have had a conversation even this week about finances, cash, credit, wages, payments, saving, spending, our stuff with someone this week, our spouse, ourselves, our kids, our parents. Uh, there's hardly an individual, a couple, or a family that doesn't have ongoing thoughts and conversations and sometimes even arguments about money. How much, uh, we talk about how much that last Target run cost, or whether we should buy a new house, or if we should swing a refi, or whether we should sell the car or drive it for longer, whether we can afford to put the kids in travel sports. 
We look for that raise. We keep a close eye on our 401k and we worry about our student loans or our credit card balances. People talk about and think about money every single day. It touches so many aspects of our daily lives. Last week, we observed that Jesus wants in on this conversation and that he has important things to say about this subject, powerful things to teach us. We talked last week about how disciples of Jesus realize that our material possessions have tons of spiritual power and potential for good or for ill. Our finances and how we handle them provide direct insight into the health and maturity of our faith. That this world says the good life is found in how much I have, but we're learning a great life comes not through having, but through giving and sharing. Here's how we heard Jesus describe it. First, we talked about the heart treasure Connection In Matthew 6, Jesus taught, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Why? For where your treasure is, he said, there your heart will be also. Heart, treasure, connection. Jesus describes this connection between our treasure, what we count as our vital resources, as our valuable riches, and our hearts. What stirs our passion and orders our priorities? And he puts it, and this is the way he puts it, uh, the key lies in where we choose to store up or invest our lives. Store up our treasure, invest our lives. On earth, merely earthly pursuits, or in heaven, godly pursuits. Money has this unique ability to not only reflect our hearts, but to direct them. That's the heart money uh, that's the heart-treasure connection. But the, he also talked about this thing called the God-money competition, as we put it last week. As disciples of Jesus, we've made him our Lord. That's key to what it means to have this relationship that we've been able to enjoy with Christ. Nothing and no one else directs our living, including our finances. Even so, Jesus warned our wealth can often be a primary contender for the throne of our lives. In Luke 16, he said, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Left to ourselves, we can easily become money's servant. But in Christ, we can become its steward. So, for sure, there is a spiritual connection and a competition happening that cannot be denied. And Jesus does a beautiful job of describing that for us. But there's another dynamic that Jesus describes, the heart-treasure connection, the God-money competition. And today we're going to look at what he talks about and call it the worldly wealth, true riches calculation. What are we talking about here? Back to Luke 16. These are the words of Jesus on this subject. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So, if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? 
Jesus reveals the calculation that exists between how we handle, as he puts it, worldly wealth, our stuff, our money, our finances, and the true riches of life and labor with him. He says that if we're trustworthy with the first, we'll be entrusted with more and more of the second. What's he talking about here? Well, it's the same as the dichotomy that he used earlier with storing up treasure on earth and treasure in heaven. But this time with the emphasis that when we handle our wealth wisely, we're both strengthening and showing the trustworthiness, key word, because he uses it twice, trustworthiness of our character. When we grow in the wisdom, and this would be kind of a summary statement of what we're talking about today. When we grow in the wisdom and generosity that ends up helping us approach worldly wealth as Jesus would have us to, we are also, in turn, developing the character, becoming the sort of people who appropriate and appreciate the grace, the truth, the ministry, the justice, the goodness of God with that same generosity and wisdom. Wise and generous people, that's the great life. That's who Jesus is aiming to make us into, wiser and more generous people. But we cannot be unwise and ungenerous in our finances and think that we're going to blossom into these wise and generous people in every other area of our life. In fact, Jesus is saying a great barometer of your wisdom and generosity will actually be how you handle your worldly wealth, as he puts it. Saying you can't, you can't kind of convince anyone else, uh, uh, including God, otherwise, when we let our discipleship to Jesus somehow not touch our stuff, our money. In fact, our stuff, our money, our possessions, we either use it or it uses us. We are either over it or it takes over us. So let's break this down for a minute, this idea, this dichotomy that Jesus presents of worldly wealth and true riches. Let's just talk about this for a moment. Worldly wealth can, if handled poorly, these are all in the idea of handled handled poorly, worldly wealth can distract us from God. But the true riches Jesus is talking about here keeps us focused on God. Worldly wealth convinces us that we are the source. True riches remind us that God is the giver of all. Worldly wealth is immediately gratifying, but true riches bring lasting satisfaction. Worldly wealth says our net worth determines our self-worth, but true riches say we're not defined by how much we have, but how much we're loved. That last one bears repeating. True riches, meaning life in Christ, tells us we're not defined by how much we have. Has anyone ever had a season in your life in which you felt like you were being defined by the world by how much you had or didn't have? Right? We've all been there. We've all felt that pressure to be defined that way in the world. But the good news of Jesus tells us that we're defined by how much we're loved. And guess what? It's a lot. It's a lot. It's more than we could ever measure. That's how much we're loved. Worldly wealth tempts us to judge others, right? Measure them by that same kind of worldly measure. But true riches urge us to love others. Worldly wealth drives us toward greed and stinginess. I need more and I need to keep it to myself. True riches draw us toward generosity and open-heartedness. Worldly wealth inevitably disorders our priorities and pushes us to make poor decisions as we pursue 
getting rich. But true riches reliably order our priorities well and promote healthy, wise decisions. Worldly wealth promises contentment only after just a little more. True riches provide contentment because God is more than enough. Amen? It's easy to see that worldly wealth, as Jesus puts it here, can be spiritually dangerous. But this is only true when it becomes a priority over the true riches of following Christ. There is a way to approach worldly wealth, Jesus says, in a trustworthy way. It is possible. In fact, it seems to be that that's what he's looking for. We can approach worldly wealth in a trustworthy way, or we can get things out of balance and it becomes the major and not the minor in this equation. In Luke 16, 11, we just read, Jesus asked this probing question. If you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? The implication here is he wants to find us trustworthy. And as his people, our aim is to be found trustworthy. That's the goal. When I read that, I think I want that to be me. What he's describing there, Jesus, I want you to find that in me. So worldly wealth should be handled with care, with prayer, used for good purposes, submitted to the lordship of Jesus, the giver of true riches. And so this brings us squarely now to the biblical principle of stewardship. This idea that our worldly wealth has been entrusted, to use Jesus' language here, entrusted to us by God. In Matthew 25, Jesus tells a parable commending earnest stewardship. In this parable, he tells a tale of a master who assigns three servants oversight over his assets before he sets out on a journey. When he arrives home, he evaluates his return on his investments in these servants. Two of the three doubled their master's money, while one fearful servant buried what he'd been given and yielded no return at all. Now, the master's earnest commendation of the first two is instructive for us. Those first two servants heard him say these words. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Each of these servants receives the same commendation, well done, and the same reward, share in my happiness, regardless of the amount of their return. They weren't given the same amount to be invested in, but they both made the most of what they had. May he say the same of us, amen? As we steward all we've been given. He's made an investment in us. Doing good and doing it well is satisfying, and it's an occasion for great gladness and joy, as we see here. Our master is joyous. Our Lord is joyous when we make the highest and best use of what he's given us. Jesus is using a parable, but it also couldn't be more clear. We are servants, each of us called to steward fruitfully what we've been entrusted with, and this will be an essential measure of our earthly life, certainly not the only measure but you get the clear impression it will matter. It's part of what, when we read Jesus earlier talking about us being trustworthy, it seems to be one of the things he's looking for in my heart, in my life, and yours. Trustworthiness. Were we a good steward with what he blessed us with? This parable is not only about money, but it is certainly not about less than that. So, 
What have we learned so far? And let's just kind of sum up this whole concept here from a biblical perspective. There are recurring themes throughout the scripture. Let's just move through them here. First, everything belongs to God. In Psalm 50, he says he owns all the cattle on a thousand hills. In Haggai chapter 2, he says all the silver and all the gold are mine. In Psalm 24, he says, it says the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Someone say everything. Everything, including my stuff. Everything, right? The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. So what is God saying here in those passages? All your stuff, he says to me, that's mine. Your prized possessions, they belong to me. All those things you worked hard to earn, thanks to me. Now, God doesn't need to say this because he's selfish, right? Because he needs to make it clear that all this is mine. He, needs, he says it because I need to hear it. Because sometimes I can be selfish. But there's hope. We can begin to figure out that nothing here actually belongs to us except God alone. He is ours. We are his. And all else, everything else that seems to be ours for now is not our property, but our responsibility. We only truly possess on earth what we are ready to fully invest in eternity. Right? Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, Jesus says. In other words, we see all our earthly goods as things that have the potential to do heavenly good. And the return we get on that kind of investment is very great indeed. So first principle found throughout scripture, everything belongs to God. Second, he chooses to share it with us. So we begin to see if everything I have is actually something that the God of the universe has decided to allocate to me, to invest in me, then that money takes on that money, that, that the stuff, your finances, your wealth, whatever words you want to use for it. It's powerful. It's meaningful. In fact, in, in a way, it's dripping with meaning because God has chosen to invest it in me. First realization. Second one is that then if it's not, if it's not ours, but God's, that gives it a whole other meaning as well. What would God do? with this money? What would God have me do with this money? It's a pivotal moment in our lives when we as disciples realize that everything we have is God's gift and investment in us, and that we're stewards called to make the most of it. The sooner we realize this, the better, and it pushes us toward, or really draws us toward, surrender. We, sur we surrender all those things. Knowing that he provides it We've, we've read earlier, the verse came up last week, for our enjoyment. There's nothing wrong with enjoying the things that God has given us but also definitely for our generosity, for our sharing, for looking at how much good we can do with it in the world. That is absolutely part of this investment that's been made in us. And that takes us to the third idea. What we do with it matters. It, it's not that it doesn't matter. It matters greatly. Our finances and how we handle them matter to God. Jesus is saying as much and talking about how we need to be trustworthy with worldly wealth. Think about it. If the way we manage our money and possessions is worth God's attention, it's worth our attention too. And there really is no question God pays attention to the decisions we make regarding the goods that he gives us. 
In the same way, he pays attention to all the other aspects of our lives as well, right? How we treat other people, how we care for ourselves, and how we handle uh, the issues of the world, and on and on and on. When our priorities are right, we can be, as Jesus says, trustworthy, or at least increasingly trustworthy, in handling worldly wealth. And again, that seems to be what he wants to find, he's looking for in us, and wants to help us become. Why? Because it's about what happens in us. Why all this talk about money? Why would money even be important? Because Jesus is always concerned about our heart, about our character, about the person we are and are becoming. And a a powerful tool in that is how we handle our wealth. It's about what happens in us, the kind of person we are and are becoming. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, it says, it's required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. So there's something that the Lord is looking for in my life, in all our lives, and that is that we have been given a trust and we can become faithful people. We own little, but we are responsible for much. And our financial choices matter because they have spiritual consequences. And so we can't afford to forget this. Everything belongs to God. He chooses to share it with us. What we do with it matters, and we can't afford to forget this. And so, because that's true, since the beginning of God's interactions with human beings, since the the earliest chapters of the human story, uh, the story of humans and God, God has asked humans to acknowledge these facts by giving back to him a percentage of what he's given them. I let go of a percentage of what God has given me so that I can learn to hold the rest loosely. Right? When we hold the rest tightly, we're, we're operating in a posture of this is mine. I'll think really hard before I ever share it. Uh, it's hard for me to give it. I earned it. And we're taking on the opposite point of view than everything we've been describing. But when God instills in me this rhythm, this habit of giving, then my hands stay open, I freely give that percentage of what he's given me back to him and his work, and it helps me hold the other percentage loosely and not tightly. Does that make sense? Deuteronomy chapter 14, way back in the Old Testament law, it says, the purpose of tithing is to teach you to always put God first in your lives. It's super clear. The purpose of tithing, a tithe means a tenth. This is the percentage that was used at that time. God God asked his people, one out of every ten sheep, one out of of a tenth of all your riches, give back to the temple, give back to God, give back to his work, give back to uh, him in worship. And this was established from the very, very beginning. Why? Because, same reason as always, this is the kind of person he wants me to to become a good steward who thinks of his purposes before my own pleasures, right? That's the kind of person he wants me to be. And one of the ways that that ends up happening is my ability to hold loosely and give freely that which I might be tempted to think is all mine and I want to keep to myself. In Proverbs chapter 3, it says, Honor the Lord by giving him the first part of all your income. And in the New Testament, Jesus reinforced this. In Luke chapter 11, he had some pretty terse words to say to the religious leaders. He said, woe to you, Pharisees, for though you are careful to tithe even the smallest part of your income, 
you completely forget about justice and the love of God. Yes, you should tithe, but you should not leave these other things undone. They had majored on the wrong thing and, and left a lot of other things behind. Jesus doesn't want to leave any of it behind. This is what stewardship looks like. The highest and best use of our financial resources that we've been given, that have been entrusted to us. And though as New Testament Christians, we are not bound by the exact math of the Jewish law, it does provide a biblical baseline, a healthy pattern for our giving that I think is completely very, very useful, this idea. In fact, everything I read in the New Testament uh, tells me that the, that the ethical requirements of the Old Testament are now written on my heart, that actually the Spirit now urges me. So there is actually, I've never interpreted uh, any of this for my own. I'm not interpreting this for you. I'm this is what I'm saying about myself. I've never interpreted any of this to say that it's an excuse to give less. That somehow God has now given less to me or the gospel has not set me aflame in a, in a way and changed my life in the deepest of ways. That somehow when it comes to the stewardship of my finances, I now have a pass to give next to nothing. But instead, I see it as an inspiration. When, when Jesus is teaching that the Old Testament law says, don't kill, but I say, don't even get angry enough to want to kill. He is always dialing up and moving more internally the requirements of the law. And so now he's saying, I don't have to do the math for you anymore, Christian. It's in your heart. It's bubbling out of your soul. It's now who you are. I don't have to carve it on stone. I've carved it in your soul. And you give as you're led to give. That's why you'll never hear us at Outlook say that there's a certain percentage that you, are, you have to give or that somehow there's a percentage that is obedience and there's a percentage that's disobedience. We would never, ever, ever say such a thing. I don't see it in the scriptures that direct uh, New, T New Testament Christians on how to live. But what I do see is a constant call to generosity. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, it says, On the first day of every week, each of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. This is the kind of approach that we see among the early Christians. You make a prayerful decision. You keep to the pattern of the, the rhythm of generosity and giving because it's good, it's healthy, and it's right. It's forming you into the kind of person God wants you to be. But you and God do the math. But just make sure that you are letting your finances be a tool for you to grow spiritually, not the fact that you become a tool to them, which will only shrink your soul. God's been teaching his people this lesson from the beginning by laying down for them a rhythm of generosity and giving. I kind of feel like this is the open secret of financial wisdom and contentment, how wealth and finances work in God's Reality, And I'm not talking about giving to God so it will guarantee that you become rich. I'm not a TV preacher and I never will be, right? You know, I'm not, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. I'm a million miles from that. Or, or maybe I am kind of saying that. But only the best kind of rich, right? The kind of rich that has nothing to do with your bank account and has everything to do with what's happening in here. That's a rich life. I remember when I was, you know, in my 20s, young, starting out, I remember writing a tithe check for a buck 87. That's how much I'd earned that week in college, you know, whatever. Why would I do such a thing? Why would I bother? What's writing a check first, right? You know, like, when, we're, we're going way back. Why would I do such a thing? 
Why? Because I loved God and I knew that I was to give the first of what I'd been given back to him. And that week it was a buck 87. It didn't matter the amount. What mattered was the commitment behind the amount. Amen. So we give in worship. We uh, and this has been uh, he's always given us steady instructions on this to share in love. This is a way he uses to turn us into the kind of people he's aiming for us to be and the kind of people this world needs. It is not hard to see what God is up to. He's showing his hand quite well. This idea that his people should be giving a generous proportion of their income back to his work. Why would that be important? How on earth might that be useful? Because I believe churches should be the best funded enterprises on the earth. I believe that the cause of God expressed through the local church should be this crazy, miraculous thing that happens. It should seem insane to other nonprofits and organizations how fully resourced a local church is. And all we can do is just, is just say, glory to God. It's because of the generous, open-handed, worshipful, absolutely radical approach, God-honoring approach of his people. That the, the amount of good that can flow through the local church should put everyone else in the world on their heels. That we should outfund any government program. We should outfund uh, any, uh, any charity uh, that is trying to do good, which is a great thing to do. But we who claim Christ as our Lord, man, we should be out there changing the world and funding those things that change the world. So if you see ministry flow, if you see integrity in, in servant leadership, if you see a safe and welcoming space for people to explore and grow in their faith, then you are witnessing one of the things this world needs most, a healthy local church. I urge you, get behind it, get involved in it, and yes, give financially to it. Hardly a day goes by that we don't think about and talk about money in our own personal lives. God wants in on that conversation, friends, and he has great things to show us, among them being the worldly wealth, true riches calculation. So what have we learned today? We've learned that our stewardship flows from humbly recognizing that all we have is only what God's chosen to give, that everything truly belongs to him and anything that's ours is his investment in us. That our possessions, whether they be few or many, are entrusted to us that we may both enjoy them and make the most of them for the work of his kingdom and the good of others. That is what makes a great life. Amen. I'm going to invite you to take your bread and cup here as we wrap up our time together in God's word and remind us of something we heard Jesus say. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. Every week we stop on, at this moment on Sunday to take a, uh, a very little meal, right? Tiniest meal you probably made, you'll eat all week. Yet, what we're saying, I believe, between us and our Lord, each time we gather, each time we stop, each time we obey him by remembering him, we're saying, find me trustworthy. I recognize that the most important reality in my life is the fact that you died on that cross, that you rose again. So I want to stop and honor that in the most trustworthy, 
honoring way I can. So let's take this bread and remember his body given for us. And the same is said of the cup. Jesus poured, Jesus shared, and he asked us to remember him and his blood shed for us. He said it sealed a new promise, a promise of grace, of forgiveness, and as we would soon learn, of power. Let's thank him for that and drink together. Let's pray together. Lord, we come before you again and just say thanks for your good word. Lord, I pray that as uh, we tackle this subject, these truths land on every heart exactly the way you want it to land. That each of us would walk out of here with our own sense of what you want us to remember, what you want us to learn, what you want us to do. Perhaps a conviction about a choice we need to make differently. Perhaps inspiration uh, for some things that lie ahead. Whatever it may be, Lord, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would do the work that is miraculous and beautiful and personal to each one of us. You are great, and we can't, we'll never get tired of saying so, Lord. It's in your uh, precious name we pray. Amen.